The sights and the sounds of South Africa are still very fresh in my mind. Now, have you ever had an experience that you think of as life-changing, meaning you come out of it viewing the world and your circumstances and your purpose in life a little bit differently? That's how I feel right now as I think about my recent trip to South Africa, because I was able to get up close and personal with some amazing people and places. I was struck by the natural beauty of the country, the mountains, the ocean, the beaches, the botanical gardens, and the exotic wildlife. And I was rejuvenated by the warmth, the pride, and the resilience of the people, particularly those who have endured incredible hardships, but still radiate such joy and hope. And I was deeply troubled by the huge economic disparities I witnessed, people living in extreme poverty and living in extreme wealth, virtually side by side. I'm back and I want to share some of the highlights of that 11-day trip with you, including the voices and stories of some of the folks I met along the way. So this hour, you're going to hear from a South African educator, a safari guide, a former political prisoner, a former prison guard who became friends with Nelson Mandela, and a woman who broke a gender barrier in her profession. And I'm also talking with a native Minnesotan who lived in South Africa for more than 16 years. Joining me now is Elise Brunel. Elise led the Cape Town Opera for 16 years, South Africa's biggest nonprofit performing arts organization. And she's now the executive director of the Vermont Symphony Orchestra. Good morning, Elise. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hi. So uh, happy I got a chance to talk with you. And thank you for making time for us this morning. And, you know, as much as I read and tried to prepare for this trip, I, I was still surprised by some of what I found. And, and was that the case for you, too, when, when you first visited and you were trying to get ready for, you know, what you were going to experience there? Absolutely. Uh, there's just no way to describe your initial reaction to that country because it is a land of extremes, extreme poverty, extreme wealth, extreme beauty, and uh, and you mentioned before the resilience of the people. I have never met kinder people who have lived under more difficult circumstances in my life. So it, it's just a wonderful country. Now, it was a job that took you to South Africa many years ago. But why did you choose to stay there, to live there so long? You made it your home. Well, actually, uh, it was my husband. I married somebody from Johannesburg. We, uh, in fact, met in a coffee shop off Lindale Avenue in <laughs> Minneapolis <laughs> quite a while ago. And then we decided to move to South Africa. So that's how I got there. And then I, I was fortunate to work with Cape Town Opera. And I stayed because those people are just phenomenal singers. And I felt like I was just honored to be part of an incredible organization that had an international reputation in music and art. And it was all from this incredible country in South Africa. So that that kept us there for a long time. And, you know, I talk with Chris Farrell every Monday about uh, economic uh, conditions here and, and the disparities that we see here in Minnesota. But I, I saw so many parallels there in uh, communities in South Africa, in both rural communities and in big urban areas, uh, extreme wealth and extreme poverty. Um, and did you witness that too? And, and, and do you see the similarities here in the U.S.? Um, yeah, you can't help but not live in it. Uh, when I was there, I became a little obsessed with something called the Gini coefficient, which is the the, the gap between the, a country's richest and poorest. And South Africa has the biggest gap in the entire world. The, the neighborhood that I used to live in just south of Cape Town, in fact, um, it's probably about 20,000 people in it. And we had a, 
a township of 15,000 people living in shacks, less than a half a mile from the home of the richest man in South Africa. It is back to back. And what's amazing is that you just live in this together. Um, so you do have this incredible uh, disparity of wealth, disparity of of opportunity. Um, by the way, com- you know, you combine that with 11 different languages. Mm-hmm. You combine that with so many different ethnicities. Uh, and it's pretty amazing that things are still working and, and getting along. So there's obviously disparities here in the United States, but it, it, to me, it's nowhere near as extreme. And before I went on the trip, you emailed me about something called load shedding. You said, Angela, do you, has anyone taught to you about load shedding? I'm like, I don't know what that means. Uh, it was a term I had not heard before, but I lived through this uh, the entire trip. Yeah. And it's when the electricity goes out. Sometimes it's scheduled. Often it is not. And it can be for five minutes or it can last for hours uh, due to an energy crisis there. What do you remember about load shedding? Oh, load shedding. Oh, yes. It's actually been going since about 2007. Um, and so you basically don't have electricity. And if you're lucky, you know in advance mm-hmm. when the two, four, six, eight hour block of time will be. So you can try to schedule your life. So, you know, that's it. It really is down to everything from the breakdown of the plants to um, design flaws to just so many factors. But what's really interesting is that the, the state electricity company accounts for 95% of all the electricity of the country. So you've got this monopoly on on electricity. And when that doesn't work, it is so uh, detrimental to the economy of the country. It's just been very hard to get foreign investors to come in if you can't reliably provide something as important as electricity. So mm-hmm. it's almost become a bit of a, a joke because you, you, know, you make plans and you're like, oh, well, sorry. Load shedding, I guess we're going to just eat outside under the candlelights. Right. But, yeah. yeah, it's tough to work with. You could be in the middle of something um, and yeah. just, you know, power's gone. Or, you know, I think with the <laughs> hotel workers, you know, they would always say with a smile, uh, you know, oh, and the, you know, load shedding from two to four. <laughs> Plan accordingly. So that that was interesting. So at least I really do want um, everyone to have a chance to listen to some of the conversations I have with uh, people I met in South Africa. I recorded a few interviews on my iPhone while I was uh, touring areas, uh, you know, around Johannesburg and Cape Town. And I want to start with this tour of Robben Island. And that is the prison where Nelson Mandela served about 18 years of his 27 years of imprisonment for fighting to end apartheid. It was a maximum security prison. It's located on an island uh, off the coast of Cape Town, and it closed after apartheid ended uh, in 1994 and then became a museum. So you have to take a ferry to get to Robben Island. And um, I was really, you know, the ferry that I was on, I was thrilled to find out that day that I was on a boat operated by the first woman captain of the tourism company that provides these rides. Um, She goes by the name Joyce, uh, her middle name, and she told me she's also a mom. And we talked about... um, the strength and the resilience of African people, because uh, I could really feel it. And I asked her if she feels this too. And here's what she had to say about the impact that Nelson Mandela had on her. I respect that man because I, I think this is one of the reasons I became one of the first female skipper to drive the boat to Robben Island. He is the reason. Because he did something more than Remarkable. More than remarkable. It makes you think, like, I can do or yes. have an obligation to, to do something for your family. Yes. Yeah. So 
what do you think about the island being in a museum and people like me from another country wanting to see a prison cell and wanting to know more about the history? What do you think about this job that you have to, to get us over there, this very? Uh, I always think they want to learn our history and we have to teach them about our history. And um, Robben Island, uh, it's an icon. Yes. It's, it's, it's a world heritage. Do you see people who often seem emotionally like they've really been on a journey? Yes, most of the people when they come from the prison, they become emotional. Because some of them, they don't know their real history. They don't know what was happening behind the bars. I think what I said to you is like, I think many of us did not, do not know the, the details of what the conditions yes. were like. It wasn't yes. just being incarcerated, it was being tortured. Yes, people were tortured. And some people lost their lives and lost their loved ones. Mm-hmm. You know, what I like is that uh, we respect each other even if we had a bad history. And even Mandela, when he comes out, he came out teaching people to forgive and forget. Oh, that is difficult. So, but the old man did. And he forgot and he forgave everybody. And that is why we, we respect him. And we all want to follow his footsteps. That was part of my conversation with Joyce. Uh, She says that Nelson Mandela inspired her to be the captain of the ferry that goes to Robben Island, the first woman to have that position. And and she also talked there about uh, how Nelson Mandela taught people how to forgive, Uh, not to forget and forgive, to acknowledge wrongdoing, but to eventually have this process of reconciliation and forgiveness. Elise, what do you remember about how people spoke of Nelson Mandela when you lived in South Africa? Well, he was the wise father of the entire country. Um, He was the person who made everyone get together in a room and find common ground. And that's a very, very rare thing, um, I think, in a politician, in a leader. And he was, because he had this lived experience of of extremes and and still um, was not a vengeful person, he wanted to find consensus and a way forward. That is the legacy he left, um, that I, I was there when he died and seeing the country come together to honor him uh, was was truly significant. Now, the tour guide who actually took us inside the prison on Robin Island um, is someone who had spent several years behind bars there himself. He's a former political prisoner who served time for his role in, in fighting to end apartheid. He goes by the name Tozy. And he described the daily routine of the prisoners, uh, the backbreaking work that they had to do, the labor uh, that they were forced to do in a limestone quarry uh, without any protective gear like gloves and glasses, breaking down rocks and just moving them from one side of the yard to the next, the inhumane way that they were often treated by uh, the white prison guards. And he told me what this prison, what Robin Island represents to him today. This prison, it was a place of homage of all those who overcame suffering to bring democracy to South Africa. This is a place of discovery and learning indeed to all the people around the world. I wanted to show the world that we don't bear any anger or grudge against our fellow brothers and sisters. 
after the atrocities of apartheid. And to show the world that you have reconciled. And by doing this, it is a healing process on our side. But there are times when we are being provoked by our fellow white South Africans who are still justifying atrocities that were made by apartheid on us as black people. All right? And then you started to question yourself why I have accepted the apology of this person if now we still justify apartheid as if apartheid was a genuine thing. All right? Apartheid was not genuine. And apartheid around the world, it was declared as a sin against the human being. Again, that is Tozy, a former political prisoner and a tour guide on Robben Island. He's uh, the person who showed us uh, Nelson Mandela's prison cell. He he says he wants people, you know, he wants to show the world that he doesn't hold a grudge about the past. Uh, you know, these atrocities, he says, uh, you know, they don't bear anger or grudge against people after the atrocities of apartheid. And it actually helps him heal. But he also told us that that some white South Africans today still justify apartheid. And that is hard for him to deal with. And Elise, what do you think about this former maximum security prison now becoming a museum and that, that you can actually walk through the, the, the prison grounds and, and through the cells and see uh, where uh, people were kept, where Nelson Mandela spent 18 years? Well, first of all, I have to say thank you for taking that trip, not only to the country, but on that boat. It's Ooh. a long way to go across. It's a hard, <laughs> the, ocean. I mean, the rocky it's water, the, it, it's an yeah. emotional journey. It is. But if you didn't, you wouldn't have been able to experience hands on what those people went through. Um, to me, that means it's living history to be able to open a prison like that for you to experience and speak with people actually incarcerated there uh, is a, a really unique opportunity. It makes me think, um, right before I moved to South Africa, the opera company I joined mounted a production of Beethoven's Fidelio, the opera about unjust incarceration on the island at the prison cells where Nelson Mandela was. And that production was broadcast across the country. So people got to see that island on their televisions and people celebrating it in an artistic way which kept it relevant. Um, it wasn't a piece of history that was stuck in the past. It was a piece of history that continues to this day to be accessed by South Africans and visitors alike. So an image I will not get out of my mind, it's probably my favorite photo uh, of this tour of Robin Island that um, I, I haven't shared because I, I, it's just it's it's a, a cave on the prison grounds, Elise, where uh, they told us this is where um, the prisoners were uh, able to have a 15 minute break um, in the middle of their day. But it was also the place that was, you know, where they were assigned to go, you know, to the bathroom. Right. So that's where they would, you know, do their take care of their business. So you can imagine a cave where, where that's happening. But it was also like where they were supposed to take their break. And so what they did is they used that opportunity, that 15 minutes a day where they did not have the supervision of guards as a place and a time where they could teach each other how to read and how to write and how they could discuss political philosophies. It was a, a time and space of each one teach one. So what was meant to, in some ways, I guess, be a punishment, they turned it around and made it an opportunity to teach and learn and to, to, to help each other grow. And that just, just stuck with me. The image of this cave, like what was meant to be a punishment is something that they turned around and made something that to make them more powerful. 
And I, I just that to me, that really speaks to the resilience of the people I met there. Had you heard about that part of the, the, the limestone quarry? Had you seen that? Actually, no, I hadn't heard about that, but I'm <laughs> not surprised because there were so many stories of sneaky education because yeah. that is the one thing the determination. during apartheid yeah. they didn't want Africans to do was yeah. to educate themselves, but they found a way. So mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. Okay. So at the end of, of my day, uh, as we toured Ryman Island, uh, we had a surprise visitor. Our tour guide at Earthbound Expeditions invited a former prison guard to come talk to us. His name is Christo Brand, and he is a white South African who Nelson Mandela mentions in his biography, which is called Long Walk to Freedom. Christo Brand is known for befriending Mandela during his final years as a prisoner when he was an old man. And um, he talks about how Christo treated him with respect, although he was trained by his fellow prison guards not to do so. So I asked him why he was different from the other prison guards. The blacks was not my enemy. I grew up on a farm where I was the only white child playing with African children. Like I grew up on a farm, my father said respect the elderly people. When I see these elderly people, I see they're hungry for children. Where I'll beg me for the child. I was thinking if I can make a way to make his heart happy. And I believe the more you can make people comfortable around you, more people respect you and you have either respect to each other. And that's why I risk my life there. That is not only there. I risk my life in many occasions in prison. Especially when you become an officer and become in charge of the Mandela Group at Portsmouth Prison, a lot of things happened between us, which was a secret for many, many years. And that only came out after my book. And Mandela always invited me to all his birthday parties. I was his 80th birthday party. I am 80th birthday party. I worked even in his office in Parliament after he became the president. We were very close. But today, I speak the legacy of Mandela. What he was standing for, what he was fighting for. Now we get the freedom for people. So what is the responsibility right now for young people? Like Mandela said, when you walk out of prison, young people, take the hands of the enemy, work harder than before, build the country together, and also buy things what you want in life. Not just wait to receive, work together. But my advice for young people is, it's like Mandela said many times, meet different cultures. Go out to visit your friend which is black, visit your friend which is Indian, visit your friend which is colored. Visit him, have lunches with him, play with him, become friendship with him, invite him to your environment that we can see our differences. And then you learn from your traditions and then you respect each other more. That was Christo Brand, a a former prison guard at Robin Island, who became friends with Nelson Mandela. And you heard him say, the first thing he said, he said, I grew up on a farm uh, where he was the only white child with African friends. And and he he said that his parents taught him to respect his elders. So when he met Nelson Mandela in prison, he was an older man. And then that is what he, that's how he treated him. Now, Crystal Brand, he's written a book about his time with Mandela in prison. It's called Doing Life with Mandela, My Prisoner, My Friend. And he's actually going to be here in the United States later this year to promote it. He's doing a book tour. And right now in his time, uh, his free time, he works with programs dedicated to prison reform, Elise. And um, what what do you see in your in the interactions between white and black South Africans uh, when you lived there? Um, I'm really so happy he said what he said, because I think it's true. (laughs) If you don't go and put yourself in the homes of people of different economic levels of you, different education, ethnicities, languages, that that divide will never be conquered. So, I mean, I 
I lived in a community, South Africa is in general uh, less than 10% white. Um, the rest of the country is black, is colored, which is another way of down there saying a mixed race, Indian. Mm-hmm. And yes, they, they think, told me they're like people of mixed race, yeah. we call ourselves colored people. Yep. And you could say that you mm-hmm. come back here, you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But um, to me, one of the benefits about being a, an outsider, an American coming in, is I, I didn't have the, the you know the sense of who not to talk to you just talk to everybody you get to know everybody so there there is um there are racial divides of course there are and a lot of that is along economic lines um johannesburg is much more integrated than cape town is for Mm -hmm. a myriad of reasons but what i learned was uh i mean i the people i worked with too was by and large uh south africa the cape town opera i worked with is by and large a black company and the the joy the joy that they have being South African, the comfort and knowledge of knowing each other's languages and cultures, their foods, their religion, their family structures, I felt honored to be able to be part of that. And it is a matter of just reaching out and saying, Can I come over and have dinner at your house? Would you like to come to mine? Um, so I was so happy to hear Crystal say that because mm-hmm. People just need to do that there, especially in South Africa. All right. We're talking about my recent trip to South Africa with Elise Brunel, who lived there for uh, about 16 years. And she is a native Minnesotan. And uh, Elise, I'm going to take a phone call. Before we take a news break, I want to get this phone call in. Uh, this is Pat calling in. And Pat, uh, you are planning a trip to South Africa? Yes. Um, I'm the executive director of an organization called Arm and Arm in Africa. And we've been going to uh, South Africa for 23 years. Um, we've had a two-year hiatus because of COVID, but we uh, do food, healthcare, and education programs in townships stretching from Cape Town to the Eastern Cape. And Pat, what do you want people to know about the people there in South Africa or, or what, the, what you, you are learning from your interactions with folks there? I think uh, the resilience is amazing. The children in particular are so hopeful. They have relatively so little. Uh, There might be one cell phone uh, for 20 kids and the ability to look after one another. I always see the the oldest looking after the youngest. Um, No fights, no arguments. They're just uh, an amazing group of people who... um, want uh, a better day and are working hard towards it. Pat, um, I have a photo in my phone of a toddler I, I met in uh, Soweto and her, her face. Mm. Uh, it, there's just so much joy in it. And um, this is a child with, with, with very little. And um, thank you for calling in and sharing that. My guest today is Elise Brunel. She's a native Minnesotan who led the Cape Town Opera for 16 years. That's South Africa's biggest nonprofit performing arts organization. And she's now the executive director of the Vermont Symphony Orchestra joining us this morning. Elise, I want to talk more about Soweto. Um, while I was in South Africa, uh, my group, and again, there was about 25 of us, uh, about half of us from Minnesota and the other folks from states around the country, all public radio listeners. But we toured a neighborhood in Soweto. We walked through um, these, uh, you know, these pathways, you know, uh, through people's uh, backyards and, and got to talk to folks uh, in their communities. Um, this is an area near Johannesburg where you see black South Africans living in shanties, often with no electricity, no running water. 
And my group was introduced to a man who runs a program that is dedicated to supporting uh, children living in poverty by providing them with books and reading tutors and meals. Um, and, and at least, I mean, we just can't say enough about the importance of education. You really see it there, particularly in, in Soweto. Is, is that what you found as well? Absolutely. And when it comes to the townships, I mean, Soweto is one of, sadly, hundreds of them. Um, I mean, 55% of South Africans live under the poverty line. So if you think about it, 55%, um, these are people who are struggling with the bare minimums of hopefully a roof, walls, running water somewhere nearby. And if you think of the way out, it is education. So it came to to focus for me in the community that I lived in because of the, the schools in the townships are against all odds, doing amazing work with a lot of support of NGOs to teach the kids uh, the, the basics, as well as so much about their own personal histories. And without that educational opportunity, uh, you know, it's just, it's a tough way forward. Well, here is a part of a, an interview I did with a, a young man named uh, Tulani Madando. Uh, Tulani is the executive director of the Cliptown Youth Program in Soweto. And I want you to listen to him describe the work that he's doing and the importance of education. It is very important for us to instill hope to young people because most of them have really lost hope. They're just uh, taking life as it comes, which is very dangerous. And for us, we do believe that um, as people don't choose their parents, these children also didn't choose to be born into poverty. And it is very important for them to know that uh, they don't didn't choose to be born in poverty, but they will choose to die in poverty with all the opportunities that exist around the world. Our role is just to help them get access to those opportunities because most of the basic things such as internet access are still a privilege instead of being a right in communities like these. So that's why for us as an organization, we believe that each and every child can and will succeed. Again, this is a, a neighborhood, you know, filled with shanties. I, I came upon a well and the folks living there said that they had um, had not had, you know, water there, uh, clean water for two weeks. And there was no explanation as, as to what was wrong with where they would normally pump water or when it would be restored. Um, but in the middle of this is this building um, that has a, a, a computer lab, uh, books, you know, a, a library, reading tutors, uh, places that they can provide meals to kids. And uh, you heard um, Tulani there say that kids don't choose to be born into poverty. And um, it's his organization's goal is to give them access to opportunities because uh, things like the Internet are not accessible to them. Um, so really impressive. Uh, he was recognized, I think, a few years ago um, as a, a CNN hero. So the work that they are doing is, is truly admirable. But Elise, your experience with working with youth programs when you were at the Cape Town Opera, uh, you all did some youth outreach programs as well. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think the last one I worked on was in the township of, uh, it was either in Kailicha or Guguletu, which is just outside of Kitan. And it was uh, sort of a self-created opera by and for the kids of that school about the Soweto uprising of 1976. So, and it was sung in Isi and English, a combination of the two. And the kids rehearsed it, they sang it, they wrote it themselves and put it on for their their peers and their teachers. And what I loved about that, in addition to these fabulous voices who are unlike any I've ever heard, was that they created an operatic piece 
for themselves about their own history. Um, and it gave them some a great creative outlet, but it was relevant to them and their parents and their grandparents. So that was a that was something that I think is so key to not be afraid of creating music and art in any of the communities. You have to be safe. You have to be smart about where you go and what time you go, but to do it. That's the most important thing. I also had a chance, our group was on a tour um, of uh, botanical gardens. I think it's, is it called Kirstenbosch? Kirstenbosch, yeah. yes. Yes, And um, while we were touring um, just these beautiful gardens and all these flowers and plants and the views of the mountains, um, I, I came across, I think it was five young women there um, who were sitting on a blanket having a picnic lunch and uh, doing some artwork. And I uh, started talking with them and they told me that they are all college students at the um, University of Cape Town. But it was I interviewed a couple of them. One is studying law. Uh, the other is studying psychology. But they shared with me that, you know, the unemployment uh, there in South Africa, it's, it's about 50%. And they, mm-hmm. um, as much as they have leaned into education and um, have, have, see it as, as, you know, what gives them hope and a sense of purpose, they feel very much they may actually have to leave South Africa because they believe they will not be able to find jobs. And uh, do you see that as well with, uh, or do you remember that the unemployment rate being so high there? Oh, indeed. Um, I have to say that was a strong reason why we also chose to, to leave. We were, we have a 16 year old child and we were just trying to figure out what the best options for the next for our future as a family was and didn't Mm -hmm. see it Mm -hmm. as strongly in the South Africa, a lot of it around the job. So you have a a handful of fantastic universities there, Fort Hare, Rhodes and UCT. Uh, But as far as jobs go, again, a country that is majority under poverty, there is the opportunities you have to create them for yourself. So if you have an entrepreneurial bent, South Africa is the country for you. But, um, in terms of jobs, a lot of people do leave because they just, you know, the opportunities are not as strong there now. And I definitely have to talk about going on safari. Um, I, <laughs> I had an opportunity, my husband and I visited Kenya uh, 27 years ago. So I had been on safari before. Uh, but this is, is such a, you know, uh, an amazing experience. Many of the members of our group uh, that we were traveling with said that the reason that they chose this trip and, you know, had saved up to go was because they really wanted to go on safari and, and see the animals in their, their natural habitat. So I want to talk about that. Um, we had two days uh, where we left our lodge at 530 in the morning uh, to go on game drives. And we were at Polanisburg National Park for um, these three-hour game drives, uh, one, uh, again, at 5.30 in the morning, right at sunrise, and then another, uh, we would leave around 4.30 in late afternoon, um, because they said that was the most activity at dawn and at dusk to see the animals. That's when they were eating and out and having a lot, a lot of uh, being busy. So we're in these large vehicles with open sides, so you could see, you know, get great views of the elephants and the giraffes and the zebras. Um, and we also saw, like, uh, a rhinoceros or two and some babies, a hippopotamus, uh, baboons and their babies. No lion sightings, uh, unfortunately, but we, we found out why we didn't see the lions. Uh, but I asked the safari guide uh, one day to share a couple of stories about the behavior of some of these animals that most people don't know. So I want you to listen to a moment to our, our safari guide, Awanjawe McKenna, uh, talk about the elephants we saw. Well, mostly we saw the three big bulls. Uh, probably one was quite big, and then the two were sort of like teenagers. Mm-hmm. So with the elephants, that's definitely normal. Uh, here in Pilansburg, 
when you study the park, they brought in lots of youngsters from uh, big game reserve called Ado Elephant uh, Park. So those youngsters were given a lot of problems with um, mounting on top of rhinos and sometimes even killing rhinos uh, because they didn't have any females or any big males to actually uh, control them or teach them a lot of social skills. So there was They had to be taught social skills, the young ones? Yes. So elephants, they... Like us human beings, we're born without knowing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So they learn a lot of stuff as they grow up and as their brain develops as well. So they had to bring in a couple of big bulls from Kruger to try to control them. So those so the male elephants? The big male the elephants, male. yes. So they brought in seven of them uh, to try to go in groups and try to hang around with the young males and teach them a lot of social skills. And that worked a lot because once... The seven bulls were brought in here probably after a year or so. Uh, the killing of rhinos and mounting of rhinos mm. and even charging um, of elephants towards the cars actually stopped. So wow. that actually stopped a lot. Uh, but from then, probably brought in a small number of elephants. But uh, the good thing is we're now sitting probably around 500 elephants in 55,000 acres. Last thing real quick. The lion, there's a reason the lion, uh, you know, we often call the yeah. lion the king of the jungle. Yeah. Uh, what is unique about the lion? Uh, the main unique about the lions is sleeping more. <laughs> so lions probably sleep more but than any other animal. So if lions eat something, uh, they will definitely make sure that they sleep as much as they can. Probably the main reason for that is the main diet is the meat. So meat takes quite a long time to digest and uh, waste a lot of their energy as well. So they have to rest as much as they can. And then they'll definitely, if they're hungry, then they start moving. But the other good thing about lions is um, as they sleep more during the day, which is very, very hot, when the temperatures cool down, they tend to uh, stretch a bit and probably walk on the road, mainly in the morning. Uh, that's why we tend to drive more in the park along the roads and see if there's something that's working on the road. Mm-hmm. And as the temperatures pick up, they move off and try to find a shade and then sleep. Again, that was our uh, safari tour guide, Awanjue. And I want to make sure that you understood that lion, the, the elephant story that he started out with. So they had a problem at this particular park where these young male elephants were uh, behaving wildly. They were attacking rhinoceros. They were uh, being, you know, a little bit too aggressive with the safari vehicles that that, that drive through the park. Because typically the animals really, they're so used to seeing these vehicles, they don't really react to them. And so this park asked another national park, Kruger Park, uh, to bring in uh, seven adult, you know, male bulls, these older... (laughs) older elephant dudes, basically, to mentor and teach these young, these juvenile uh, male uh, elephants how to behave. And within a year, they saw a difference in the behavior. So the bad behavior stopped, they became less aggressive. And uh, it's just an example of uh, like how I mean, isn't that just stunning? That was like one of the most stunning stories to me about how, uh, you know, young elephants needed guidance from older elephants, but particularly of, of the same sex. Isn't that wild, Elise? I I am thinking about having those elephants go down to the Cape Town area and teach that to the baboons because the baboons need a little lesson in behavior. They're the wild. Thing. But it is amazing, yeah. um, you know, because, you know, these drives and, you know, we do three hour drives because it's, it's very spontaneous. They just don't know what's going to be out and when and where mm-hmm. you're going to see things. So you go out multiple times. And uh, wh- what were your some of the experiences when you went on safari? What did you what do you enjoy about that? 
uh, I, I still remember my very first trip to South Africa, I think in the mid nineties, we were driving down the highway in Johannesburg and there was a, a box truck doing, going down the highway sticking out of the top of it was a giraffe head. <laughs> and there was somebody was transporting him down the highway to, I don't know where, but I thought that's unusual. And my husband at the time goes, no, that's kind of normal. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we didn't have, there's not much in the way of game farms on, on mm-hmm. the Western side of the country. So where you went, that's where all the game parks are. And the thing that impressed me when I first went to one, I went to Kruger Park the first time mm-hmm. was simply the size of these animals. They are huge. Right. You could stand underneath the stomach of a giraffe. They are so tall. And the massiveness, it makes you feel uh, very humble as yes. a little tiny human being in the world. So uh, impressive and nothing compares to being in the park with them. Right. I think the cameras really just don't do it justice trying to capture yeah. the images. And I love this story, too. Uh, we would see uh, large groups of zebras and wildebeests often together. Wildebeest, yeah. Yeah. And I asked about that. And the guide said it's because uh, they benefit from being together because the zebras have excellent eyesight. They can see really well. And the wildebeests have really good hearing. So when they are together, uh, they're able to protect themselves from the lions. Because uh, the lion uh-huh. is the is the predator that everybody's afraid of, so they figured out, okay, if we hang together, it improves our odds <laughs> of surviving. And I just, I love just this, the the whole, you know, just that that whole, you know, the 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 circle, the cycle that that they have an understanding of what they need to survive, and and seeing them interact with their young was also really beautiful. The little baby elephants mm. and the baby rhinos, you know, uh, basically, oh, I guess, cute. yeah, you know, uh, feeding, you know, with their moms. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to talk about winelands. I didn't interview anybody in the wine because I was doing a lot of wine tastings and I really didn't need to be interviewing people when I was doing it. But <laughs> South African good at the time. <laughs> South African wine is amazing. Um, oh. and you can I mean you can think about it. You can imagine the climate there being great for it, but uh, just can't say enough about South African wines. I had not really experienced or tasted those a lot uh, here in the US. Uh, and what do you want to say about those? Oh, well, I have to say we lived within driving distance of 350 vineyards, Ooh. which is um uh, Pretty nice, uh, but you know th- what I loved about uh, the the wines of South Africa is they have varietals. We don't really have too much here in South- in, in America. Like the Chenin Blanc is a, a fantastic white wine that comes primarily from Southern Africa. So to me, that the winelands are majestic and beautiful. They are quite often in and amongst the mountain ranges um, in the Western Cape. They provide a lot of employment, and I think there are a wonderful ambassador for the products of the country around the world. Mm -hmm. It's um, just phenomenal. If you drink wine, um, I I would highly recommend you going and trying to see if your local place has, has a bottle you could try. So Mm -hmm. we, we would go there on the weekends. That's what you would do on the weekends. You go out to the wine country and have a picnic and uh, just relax. Well, I just uh, just want to tell everyone, I just have just, again, this new appreciation for all that we have uh, as American citizens and uh, just seeing people being so grateful for just having the basics uh, just really reminded me of how fortunate we are uh, for the many things that we have here. And it has really renewed my uh, dedication to supporting education, um, which we all know is just so vital. And at least just finally for you, how do, how do you think your time there changed you? Oh. Uh, thank you for asking that. It it, I was uh, happy and, to be raised in a family that gives back, but this just reiterated mm-hmm. how important it is to give back and to uh, just embrace people and cultures 
for who they are and, and to get on the plane for the 14 hour plane ride. <laughs> it's worth <laughs> because it. Because what's at the other end is so worth it. Well, yeah. we are out of time, but I want to make sure our listeners know that if you want to see pictures and videos of the places I visited, you can go to our website, go to mprnews.org slash slash South Africa, mprnews.org slash South Africa, and you'll see lots of images of the places I visited and the people that I met. Thank you for joining us. Elise, thank you for your time. This conversation today was produced by Danelle Cloutier. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.